On this episode of This Week in Linux, we take a look at the latest Raspberry Pi, Linus has some comments on some performance issues with the recent Spectre mitigations, Canonical announced 10 years support for Ubuntu 18.04, we'll also be checking out a bunch of distro releases from Void Linux, Slacks, Deepin, Hunix, and even a beta from Red Hat. Later in the show, we'll cover some security news, as well as some awesome sales going on for Linux games right now. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux GNU's. Before we get started, I just wanted to apologize for not doing the show last week. Uh, but unfortunately, I became ill. And I'm still sick, as you can probably tell with how my voice sounds. But I just wanted to make it clear that if I can do the show, I will. And this week, I can. So let's just jump into it. Up first in the show this week is the Raspberry Pi Foundation has announced a new Raspberry Pi, the Pi 3A+. This is a kind of, a, it's not actually, it's new, but it's not like a new powerful one they, like they typically do where they, they release a new and it's even more powerful. This is more like um, a hybrid between uh, the power and the small form factor, well, smaller form factor, because there's like the uh, Raspberry Pi Zero or the Zero W, which is a very small uh, piece, a small, small board. And it doesn't have all the different features and stuff like that. It doesn't have like a full USB port and things like that. So it's a, and it also isn't as powerful for the RAM or the the CPU. So uh, this one is more like an in between between the uh, the main Raspberry Pi and the Pi Zero. Uh, this is the it's a, it's actually cheaper than the regular Raspberry Pi as well. It's a twenty five dollar uh, Pi, and it has a one point four quad core one point four gigahertz quad core CPU. They've added the uh, video core four GPU, and it has 512 megs of RAM. So it's 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 actually quite powerful for the the form factor and the like the super the super small compact size it is, while also having full USB support or full USB port. I mean, and a full HDMI port. Uh, it also has Bluetooth and Wi-Fi built into it. So it's kind of like sort of a, a more powerful original version of the Pi. Like the original Raspberry Pi was similar to this, and it's kind of like that, but a much more powerful version. So this is that's pretty cool. And if you're interested, you can check it out. Uh, there's probably going to be when well, the next release from Raspberry Pi is probably going to be like the Pi Four because they've kind of said that it's like this is the last one that they're going to do of this series. So I look forward to that as well. But this is a pretty good uh, option for people who are looking for something really cheap. And they also did a update to the Raspberry the Raspbian OS, which is the Debian based. Uh, distribution that is made by the foundation and they also um, they basically made it where it has a minimal install which is really nice and they did uh, they added VLC and the reason why that's of significance to note is because prior they didn't really have a media player available on the system and now they do with VLC but also they have uh, custom updates uh, and drivers for the video core GPU that the board is now using so that's pretty cool so if you'd like to find some more information about this one, you can find a link in the show notes. If you've ever been curious about having doing some home automation, you should check out Home Assistant, which is an open source home automation project. And their latest version added support for TensorFlow, Wemo Humidifier, which I might be useful for me as being sick at this point. Uh, anyway, and also they've done some uh, fix some bugs for various different services. If you haven't heard of it, they describe the, this project as um, open source home automation that puts local control and privacy first. 
powered by a worldwide community of tinkerers and DIY enthusiasts, perfect to run on a Raspberry Pi or a local server. Now, this is actually really cool. I've talked to some people uh, personally that are uh, they're a part of uh, the Tux Digital uh, uh, Telegram community, and they've they are actually using Home Assistant right now. And they gave me some tips about what they like about it and things like that. Uh, and through my like research about the project, there's there's a ton of different support that it has, like tons of different devices and services, and they call them components. And they have over 1,200 components right now as of this recording. Uh, those include Ift or If This Then That service. Also, it supports Kodi, Plex, Amazon Echo, Wemo devices, Bluetooth. Uh, you can even do SMS support, like sending text messages and like a ton more. And if you're interested in checking it out, there's also a video uh, from the founder of the project at the Open Internet of Things Summit. He did a keynote there, and it was in, it was called a Open or the Automating Your Home with Home Assistant Home Assistant Python's Answer to the Internet of Things. So uh, you, you can find a link to the this the article for the latest version of the of the project as well as the link to the keynote from the creator of Home Assistant in the show notes. We got some uh, interesting comments from Linus Torvalds on the kernel mailing list recently about the STIBP um, patch, or also as known as the Single Threat Indirect Branch Predictors patch. And this is the, the reason he's talking about it is because he's not happy with the performance that's uh, the performance hit that's coming with it. Uh, basically, it's in some cases limiting it by up to 50% performance, and obviously that's not a good thing. Uh, this was introduced recently in 4.20, as well as for to relate to the cross hyperthread Spectre variant, uh, Spectre variant two protection. Basically, it's the it's another meltdown Spectre problem that they're dealing with because you know this is going to be it's going to continue to happen, uh, and unfortunately. Um, it wasn't. It's a little worse than what was stated originally. From like the, the the worst case scenario, that was first introduced when they when they announced the problem, was like a thirty forty percent uh, maximum uh, performance hit, and uh, that's actually exceeded that, and that's unfortunate. But on the on the mailing list, uh, Linus said, when performance goes down by fifty percent on some loads, people need to ask themselves whether it was worth it or not. I don't think the code needs to be reverted, but the behavior of just unconditionally enabling STIBP needs to be reverted because it was clearly way more expensive than people were told and expensive in the sense of like processes and performance. And yes, I, I would have to agree that that's, that's a ridiculous amount of uh, issues to deal with. Uh, but they also said that there's a, there's a lot of discussion going on with the developers and that there's currently a consensus to, that to only enable this patch uh, for specific processes that it affects the most, so as to not kill the full Linux performance across the entire system. And they've also backported this, these patches to 4.19.2, so if you are using 4.19, you might be affected if you did update to that version. But you still should use these because it is, a, it is a, an, an issue uh, that's, you know, if, if you're vulnerable to it and you are attacked by it, which is unlikely but still possible, uh, it would not be very good. So it's kind of like a situation where it's not good, but it kind of needs to be done. And hopefully they'll be able to optimize and figure out a way to mitigate the mitigation, I guess. So 
And if you'd like to learn more or check out the uh, the link in the show notes for the message from Linus Torvalds about this topic, as well as uh, I also put it like a Pharonics article I just talked about as well, because that was a really interesting one too. At the OpenStack Summit in Berlin, Mark Shuttleworth announced that Ubuntu 1804 LTS would be extended from the just five years to the now 10 years of support. According to Mark, in part, the reason is because of the very long time horizons in some industries like financial services, telecommunications, and others, but also from an IoT where manufacturing lines, for example, are being delayed that will be in production for at least a decade. So the the idea of and adding the extra time for it is just a great thing. You could kind of even say that it might be a little bit of a reference to like the, the what Red Hat does. So it could be in response to Red Hat doing like IBM buying Red Hat. But Ubuntu gets most of its money from server and cloud uh, customers. So it does make sense that they would do that. And giving them extra 10 years or giving them an extra five years for a total of 10 would is really good because that's actually what Red Hat does anyway. By default, they give a 10 year support cycle. So it's really good that uh, they're doing this because it, it allows them to compete in that space as much up uh, directly against Red Hat for long-term support. Uh, they also said that they're going to do um, a longer lifespan. They haven't really said exactly, but they said a longer lifespan for 16.04 so that the, the the original stating for, or the original date for end of support for 16.04 was 2021. They say they're going to keep that one going. Uh, they haven't really said how long that will be yet, but when whenever they do, I'll, I'll update you that on that one. Um, they also said that they're, they're, they're addressing the OpenStack promising to support versions from uh, 2014 and going forward. But again, they haven't said uh, how long the, two, like the 1404 would be uh, maintained either. But they did. Uh, he did say that what matters isn't day two. What matters is day 50, uh, 1,500, which is actually uh, less than five years. So... Eh. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, it's really good to see that they're doing it and it does show that they are making moves to remain competitive in that space as far as like the big enterprise push. Uh, so it is kind of interesting because of all the talks about the IPO and things like that. I think it'll be very fascinating to see what happens when the IPO, when they actually do one, because they did say they're going to do it. They didn't really say when, but they said it's, uh, Mark said it was like l- likely to be doing it in t- 2019. Uh, if they do, if they were to do it, it would probably be like the, the end of 2019 or maybe the early 2020. Either way, they did they did say it's going to happen. So uh, it's going to be very fascinating to see what happens when it finally does. So if you want to uh, check out the the keynote from Mark Shuttleworth's uh, OpenStack Summit ex, um, appearance, I guess you could call it, uh, you can find a link to that in the show notes. In some more canonical news. The EGMDE project has been announced, and this is a project that uses Mir. That's actually how they described it. Um, what's really interesting is, is actually it's a it's a, dis, a desktop environment basically that uses Mir. Now it's not really like a full desktop environment. It's more of a example system. Uh, the actual the the initialism stands for the example Mir desktop environment. I'm not really sure where the G comes from, but you know. Uh, anyway. They says that Mir provides a broad and powerful library to solve those the, the many problems as far as like how the display server connects to the uh, the software and the applications and other libraries. But there's a learning curve to use Mir in an effective way as far as being the solution for that. So they created this 
like example desktop environment for for Mirror to teach people who are making other DEs how they could utilize Mirror uh, in their system. So if they wanted to support Wayland, but they didn't have an ability to, to build their own compositor for Wayland, which is basically in order to support Wayland, every DE has to make their own compositor or to use a compositor that already exists. And Mirror is one of those compositors that already exists and is going to be, you know, usable for DEs to implement into their system. But they didn't really provide a way for people to see how it all works. And this is a this is a new example that allows them to do that. So a developer of any particular DE could take this this particular example and then engineer it to or reverse engineer, I guess, but it's open source, so you don't have to reverse engineer it technically. Uh, but anyway, they could take that and put it into their own system or their own software to make sure it works on Wayland. So it's a really cool project that they're doing. And uh, Ubuntu Podcast, uh, Martin from Ubuntu Podcast, they talked about it in the last last episode. And I thought it was funny because I want to talk about that. Uh, the way that they, it's EGMDE, and Martin likes to call it Egg Mode. And I think that that's the now unofficial name for this project, Egg Mode. I like it. If you'd like to learn more about this, you can find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show, Red Hat has announced the beta beta for Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8, which is the bigger major major version for the next release of Rail. And this one is uh, there's kind of like pushing a lot more towards the cloud and container-based system. Uh, so they have a lot of cool things that are being added from Fedora, like uh, there's doing a lot of things for like DNF. They're replacing uh, some pieces of the Yum package manager. Uh, they're being updated with the DNF package manager um, based on the DNF. So maybe in in uh, Rail 9, they'll completely switch over to DNF, which would be nice because DNF is really good. So what's really cool in this latest version is that they are introducing something called application streams. And this is a concept that makes it easier to upgrade user space packages while leaving core operating system packages alone. This is one of the main things that Linux has had a problem with for years, having dependencies that you want to have one piece of software that wants a dependency of one version of this, this uh, one of their dependencies, and another version of a different dependency. And you can't have both at the same time of those dependencies, and it was this weird, awkward uh, situation. So there's been many different ways to mitigate it, uh, this is a new one from Red Hat, and it's an application stream to do it more directly to the core system, which is really cool. And if you want the latest version of a program, you don't have to wait till the next release. You can just use the application stream and to say, I want this particular version of MariaDB and this particular version of PHP, etc. And it would be, it would can actually allow you to do, you know, pick and choose what you want you want for whatever. Uh, dependencies you want, as well as having multiple versions of a particular package. So if you wanted to have, if you needed three different versions of PHP, you could totally do it with this. So that's very, very cool. Uh, they've also said that they're going to utilize the uh, kernel 4.18 upstream version, as well as using Fedora, a lot of stuff from Fedora 28, including uh, GNOME 3.28 with Wayland as a default display server. So that's interesting for Red Hat to do that as far as the, the workstation part of it goes. Uh, because um, it's just it's just interesting to use Wayland as default. I know that GNOME and Fedora use Wayland as default. Uh, I'm just kind of surprised that Rail decided to do as well. But anyway, that's great. Anyway, so um, 
it's kind of interesting because this is like the first release since IBM purchased it, or the first will be the first release because it's technically not out yet. But it's it's looking very close. A lot of people are going to be looking very closely at this release to kind of see what's going to happen with the future of Red Hat. And I think it's, this is a good example of what's come. It's uh, all the innovation that they're doing because the application stream is a very cool idea. And I think this is a it shows that it's clear that Red Hat is gearing up for like the hybrid cloud market approach. Um, and the, and the, actually the hybrid cloud market is a really cool idea. If you're not aware, it sounds like a keyword, like a buzzword, and it kind of is, but uh, what the idea is that the hybrid cloud market is where you have a cloud service, but you have a hardware that is uh, provided by any, like a, you know, a manufacturer or you have your own hardware, and you have the stuff stored on your, on your own in your own local area, or your own local area network, so your own, your own section. Then it's also put into the cloud as like a backup, like back and forth. So like there's a, com- a local component, hardware component, and then there's a cloud component where some services are just like doing the whole save everything to the cloud. This the hybrid cloud idea is to do like both. You can have the local security of it as well as like, you know, that the the reliability of having the software local or in, this, in the storage local, but also having stuff in the cloud too. So it's a very interesting approach, and that's probably the one I would choose if I were to do that kind of thing. But anyway, if you'd like to find out more about this particular release, or the beta release anyway, you can find a link to this in the show notes. We've got a lot more distro news in this episode, and up next is Void Linux. Void Linux is released 2018-11-11 release, so November 11th, 2018 release. Um, that it, this is a uh, interesting thing that they're doing for this particular release. Uh, they've done a lot of security patches and things like that. But if you haven't heard of Void Linux, we talked about it in our previous episode about how they were having some issues with uh, their maintainer being absent. And that's all been taken care of. So this is one of the reasons I want to put it into the show to let you know that this has been taken care of. Void Linux is back to uh, full capacity about you know, making the soft, making the project and everything. They have access to all the stuff, except for the forum. They don't have access to the forum yet, which they could just make a new forum, I guess. That's really, that's not a big deal, I guess. I mean, in my opinion, a forum as much as the people who use it, so you could just replace it. Um, anyway, so if you haven't heard of Void Linux, Void Linux is an independent distribution with actually it has a, they're, they're, even their package manager is written from scratch uh, called the XBPS, and they have a, they have a custom build system too. So uh, it's really interesting because very there's not that many distributions that are completely independent. They're usually like forked over Debian or forked on Arch or forked on Ubuntu or something like that, and which is all fine. I have no problem with with forks or anything or derivatives. It's just like uh, it's just interesting to to see when new distributions come out with an independent approach, uh, like Solus, like Void. You know, there's many more, but it's really interesting to see those. And Void is a rolling release. And has a ton of different flavors, like a ton. You can have um, a system that uses Enlightenment, Cinnamon, Mate, XFCE, LXDE, and LXQt. I did notice there's no Plasma there, so. Uh, but <laughs> uh, it also has support for a lot of ARM-based um, devices, like the BeagleBone, uh, the QB Board, Odroid, and a bunch of Raspberry Pis. M- many different versions of the Raspberry Pi, and a bunch of other things. So. Um, it's really nice to see that they're back in full force, and uh, I look forward to seeing what they do in the future. So if you want to check out the show notes, 
You can find a link for Void Linux there. Up next in the show is Slacks 9.6.0 has been released. Uh, Slacks is a minimal distro that uses the Fluxbox window manager by default. Uh, it's actually con a really cool idea because they are doing a, a persistent system that runs on a USB. You can also install it if you want to. But what's really cool is that they have the option for a you know, USB drive to be b b installed to it, but also have persistence there. Uh, and rather than just doing... Uh, trying to do like a, you know, install from one USB to another. Uh, you can just draw, install it directly to the USB like regular and it have a persistent system built into it. Uh, it also has a modular system so that you can do uh, all kinds of stuff with it. Um, if you and What's interesting about it is that we talked about this distro a few, few, I'm not sure how many episodes ago, but it was quite a few. And it was because they changed their uh, their base from Slackware to Debian. Uh, we had and there when they switched it over, there wasn't like a huge change uh, as far as I mean the core is a huge change, but I mean in like uh, it's more like they were porting everything to it. And now this one has a lot of interesting, cool things that they're doing with it now. Uh, the the persistence thing is really cool, and the minimalism of it is something I'm actually interested in trying out on one of my computers because um, they also support now they fixed the Pixie Boot or PXE Boot, which allows you to boot a computer over a network. So you can have like a little bit of power going to the system and, uh, and then you can just tell the, oh, like from another computer on the network to say, you know, boot this computer uh, and they fix that. So that's pretty cool. Um, but Slack slacks is something I'm interested in because, um, I have like an appliance thing. Like, uh, I have a stream. Well, well, I do one computer that has this, I do the show on, and then I'm going to try to do it where I do one show, not a show. I don't know. I do a, I'm going to do a, like do some game streaming for example, of having this one computer to play the game and then another computer do the streaming because my main computer is not powerful enough to do both. You could do one or the other, but not both. And I have another computer that maybe could do the streaming. So the idea is that I would send the feed to from one computer to the other and maybe use Slacks as a minimal way of pushing that data to the internet. So I'll have to check that out and see if it'll work. But it has potential for it, because especially since it's so lightweight and things like that. So I'm looking forward to trying that out. Uh, hopefully, it might be a solution for it. And if it is, I'll let you know in a future episode whether it worked or not. Uh, either way, you know, if you want to find out more about Slacks 9.6, you can find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is Deepin 15.8. Uh, 15.8 has been released from Deepin, and there's quite a lot of cool things that have been done. Like Deepin has some really nice interface changes that like they have a nice like sidebar effect for the settings and they've done like this uh, a lot of work for the uh, the dock at the bottom where you can do like tray I tray applets inside of the dock and stuff like that like it's overall they've done a quite a few uh, quite a good uh, job for the polish of it uh, they've added a new grub theme so that you can have some uh, nice splash effects when you boot your system and also they've done some more uh, more efficiency. They've called, they call it an efficient mode, but it's not, I don't really say how it's efficient. It kind of, it's just really more of an interface switcher, but uh, they do have support where it will change the display based on the resolution. So like it'll adapt to different um, monitors and different resolutions for it, uh, as well as uh, transparency settings and auto brightness controls. A lot of cool stuff like that. They've also made it where they said they did like this, the Mac OS style, which is basically the applets uh, the tray applets being in there. 
um, as well as they also call it the a Windows dock, which apparently is just basically turning the dock into a panel at the bottom. So I'm not really calling, not sure when I call it a dock, but you know, whatever. Um, I guess that's really. I mean, it it does kind of look like Windows once you. It kind of looks like Windows 10 once you do it. Uh, it's really interesting as far as like how close it is while at the same time being unique. Um, but for the majority of the time, it's very Windows heavy. Like the the application windows look very Windows Windowsy Windows Microsoft Windowsy. Um, but anyway, they've also added full disk encryption and stuff and a bunch of stuff. So for the installer, and if you want to check out more, you can find a video from like the promo promo video for them. Um, it's kind of weird because it's really long and it's the same repetitive music like for the entire time. So uh, you might want to just mute it when you watch it. But there you go. Just you know heads up for that. But Deepin is um, making a lot of interesting stuff, and I do respect the work they put into the design. It's very nice. It's probably one of the nicest looking Linux distributions uh, available. As far as like functionally, there's some things that I'm not really a fan of because they're it's kind of limited. Um, it's more this is more for people who like the polish and what they offer you and just use as is. Um, I'm more of a customizer per- person, so I want I, I want to have some specific to my workflow and. Uh, Deepin doesn't really offer that, so I, it's not really something I would be looking into. But it does have a lot of interesting uh, benefits to it. Like it's very nice design, really. Uh, but there's also some controversy around Deepin that's been going on for the past few months or so, uh, re- related to some uh, tracking. Um, like some people have called it spyware, some people have called it just tracking. Um, it's not really either. Now there are some issues where. Uh, you could argue that they shouldn't have any kind of tracking whatsoever by default inside the system. Um, in some cases, I would have to agree in the way that they did it, where it just automatically will um, be attached to the store, the, their app store. And the reason why that's a problem is because their app store automatically launches when you first boot the system. So that means when you first boot the system, you're automatically giving data to them. Oh, but not actually to them. Uh, but anyway, I'll get to that in a second. Um, but it's more of if, because it's automatic is what makes the problem. Um, but they basically do, they used to use this service called CNZZ. I think that's what it was. And it was essentially just like an analytics company. It's similar to Google analytics where you, uh, you know, you go to a website and they have Google analytics at the bottom. That's, you know, every time you load it, it's tracking what you're doing on their website so that they can make changes based on the experiences that the users have and things like that. So that's what these analytics tracking things are doing. The fact that they had it built into the store is kind of weird, even though the, the store was built on it as, as a web store. I mean, not really. It's an app store using web technologies like Electron to make it work. And it was kind of weird, but I don't think that tracking by default is necessarily bad. Like the way Ubuntu does it, I think that's fine because they ask you if you would like to participate in the, in the, in the analytics and you don't have to, but you can if you want to. And I think that's much better. They were just kind of doing it automatically. But at the same time, they weren't really tracking the user. So like there were some people talking about how um, some people mis- misunderstood what was going on and saying that this particular ID meant it was the computer was sending it, but that ID was actually the account ID for Deepin. So really, it's just Deepin getting anonymous data but at the same time, they're not really asking for permission to do that. So I can understand why that would be sketchy. But I do want to put the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want you to know, I want to let you know that the 
uh, deep in people made a blog post saying that they have removed the tracking part from the store so that that doesn't happen anymore. Um, so uh, they basically want to make sure that people are aware that if you do want to use Deepin, they didn't have intent to do any kind of tracking thing like that. And they just, it was like a misunderstanding between what they thought they were doing and what other people thought they were doing. And in order to, um, they decided to compromise in order to uh, let everybody know that they're taking it completely out. So there wouldn't be any question about whether it's malicious or not. Uh, so there's that for you. And if you would like to check it out, I'll have a link in the show notes. Hunix 14 was released this week. And Hunix is, um, one, it's a fun name, fun name. I like it. It's like a pun of who and Unix. I, I like it. Uh, who's using it? It's not, okay. Anyway, I like that. It's a fun name. Anyway, uh, Hunix is a desktop operating system designed for advanced security and privacy. This is what they're just, this is what they are stating it. Like that's what their point is. Um, it also says that it mitigates the threat of common attack vectors while maintaining usability. What's interesting is that this is kind of like a distribution that is designed to be a virtual machine. So you run it inside of the virtual machine and it uses the Tor network to be anonymous and private. So it's like, and it's all put like built together for you. It's using a Debian based system uh, to do it all, but you essentially install this, uh, this distro, distro into a VM, use the Tor network, and then you can like surf anonymously and you know basically do whatever you want through this to be more secure and more safe rather than your host machine is what they're saying. Um, whether this is uh, a necessary thing to do or not, I'm, I don't know. As far as like you know, you could just use a Tor network on your own computer or something like that, or use it you know whatever uh, distro you wanted inside of a VM, and that could kind of do it. But it is interesting to have a, a distro that's going to provide all of that together in one package and make it easy to use. Um, you know, just so you can like load it up really quickly if you wanted to. So that's actually pretty cool. And I do, uh, I, I am going to consider looking into this because it is an interesting thing because of the whole, uh, VM specific approach they're doing. And, uh, I do, I do want to check it out. And if you also would like to check it out, you can find a link in the show notes to Hoonix, Hoonix. It's gotta be that. It's gotta be Hoonix, right? Hoonix 14. Up next in the show is some legal news from Mozilla as they are now fighting for net neutrality. They have been for a very long time, really. This is more of an update. Uh, basically, Mozilla said that if they're, if the FCC were to follow through on their um, removal of the net neutrality rules, that they will take them to court, and they have now done so in filing, um, uh, filing against the FCC to challenge them for their ruling on net neutrality which is basically to abolish and completely remove and abandon net neutrality because they don't understand how the internet works or how ISPs work, uh, apparently. Even though the guy who is the chairman of the SEC actually used to work for Verizon and totally should know how they work, but hey, you know, there's that. So well, the problem is what uh, Mozilla is stating is saying that the FCC's removal of net neutrality rules is not only bad for consumers, it is also unlawful. The protections in place were the product of years of deliberation and careful fact-finding that proved the need to protect consumers, who often have little or no choice of internet provider. Now, this is very, very true in many cases. There's Sometimes there's one option, and sometimes there's two options. But typically, one option per technology. So you could say that sometimes these, the FCC would even say that this is actually like, oh, you have competition because 
the guy who chairman from the SEC, he stated because you could go to DSL, and that's not the same thing. So you could have high speed internet from cable, or you could have inferior internet from DSL. Like that's like that's even a choice. Of course it's not. Um, and in some cases you don't even have that choice at all, and you have one option. Maybe you only have DSL. I mean, there's a lot of people who have that kind of situation, especially in like the rural areas and stuff like that. You know, they're they're totally stuck unless they actually like physically move themselves to another place. Um, and if you get fiber, well, there's actually competition with fiber for some reason. Like for some reason, the companies when they have uh, in the fiber areas, there's actually uh, people trying to compete there because uh, people want fiber. So they kind of have to compete because as soon as there's one company that does it like Verizon Fios and then Google joins, joins in on that and like Google fiber. And then there's a Comcast fiber and all this other stuff. Then there's actually competition and it's actually beneficial to consumers. It's somehow crazy that the FCC doesn't understand that. The only examples where there ever is competition or any, there's actually good options is when there is competition, but most of the time there isn't. Uh, for example, in my area, there was this one company that offered cable service inside the main city. And then there's another company that offered uh, cable service for inter cable internet service around, uh, around the city. So they didn't technically compete. They were more of like territorial based competition where they, you, you didn't compete with each other at all. Um, but anyway, then a couple years later, actually it's probably like last year, I think they, the company who was outside the city decided to purchase outright the company inside the city. Now, of course, it wasn't because of my city that they did it for, but it's more of the fact that they were able to do so and then become an absolute uh, monopoly in the area uh, as far as that technology goes, uh, cable internet. And yet somehow the FCC thinks that there's still competition. They're like, not only is there not competition, they're, they're not even pretending anymore that there is. So... I, I'm glad that all these different people, like the fight for the the fight for the future and the uh, save the internet people, are working to make sure that these uh, these government officials and these government um, representatives representatives are not just doing or getting away with doing whatever they can to benefit themselves and benefit their um, former employers and stuff like that at the sake of the users and the consumers. Um, and the internet itself, because, you know, they're going to try to mess it up as much as they can, because that's the status quo for ISPs, apparently. So moving on, they also go to say, go on to say that the FCC miscorrect, mischaracterizes the structure of the internet. Even they don't even understand how it works. They repeatedly contradict themselves and have even introduced near, new jurisdictions, not outlined in the FCC's original decisions to repeal net neutrality protections. So it's really cool that they're working on uh, filing against them to see if they can stop it because hopefully they can or hopefully like the, the, all the mass amount of people can stop it. Um, FCC has already made the decision. This is more of like can they get the legal system or Congress or whatever to do something about putting it back in place because um, the FCC apparently doesn't know what they're doing. So, well, anyway, if you'd like to learn more, if you'd like to read the ridiculous 58 long page, 58 pages filing uh, from Mozilla. I have a link to that and the blog post in the show notes. Up next in the show is there the new Internet of Things security regulations from California. Now, this is we talked about this previously, but this is more like they've actually finalized what it's going to be in in the in the document. So uh, that's why I want to bring it back up. 
this is the SB327 law, which will be uh, taking into effect January 2020. It requires all connected devices to have a reasonable security feature. Now, the good news is that the term connected devices is very broadly defined. So this could include just about everything, even you know anything that connects to the internet at all. So that's kind of good. Uh, but the not so good news is that the reasonable security remains defined such that companies try to avoid compliance can argue that the law is unenforceable. The legislation requires that security features must be able to protect the device and the information on it from a variety of threats and be appropriate to both the nature of the device and the information it collects. So it's kind of too broad in that structure. So it's good to be broad about what your what is being affected, but not like what you need them, what you're requiring them to do. So it's kind of like, eh, it still needs some work for it. But overall, it's really good that they're doing this because Internet of Things, let's face it, security is not important at all to Internet of Things companies at all. Like, security, updates, um, reliable usage. Really, they just want you to use their stuff and get the data and all kinds of things like that. They typically aren't focused on at all maintenance and anything security maintenance, much less even regular, you know, up to updating the software maintenance. Like the, a lot of IoT devices will be released and then never get an update ever, and uh, that's not good. So it's it's really nice to see that there is some people taking some measures to try to mitigate that somehow, because apparently the manufacturers themselves don't care enough to provide security updates or even just updates in general. But uh, some do, some don't. I mean, a lot don't, but some do. Like, um, well, that doesn't matter. I'm not going to, like, promote products right now. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this this bill, uh, as well as you can check out the uh, Schneider on security, um, his uh, his view of the like the, the, the bill itself, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Up next in the show is some unfortunate news for WordPress plugin users. Uh, well, specifically, not just WordPress users, but people who use the WP GDPR compliance plugin. Um, and this is a lot of people. So this is why I'm being I'm adding it to the show because it's a significant one. And also, it's probably going to get more attention uh, because of the fact that it's it's a GDPR plugin. And a lot of people need something to help them you know, solve the GDPR issue. So uh, this basically what this does, it helps website, this plugin helps websites be more, be compliant with GDPR. I mean, not like a perfectly because it, you still need to make sure that you, everything that you're doing is compliant. So you might have to talk to like a lawyer or something like that or a consultant of some kind, but this is more of a way to like help mitigate it as fast as possible, as quickly as possible and easy as possible. Um, but anyway, so it's a very popular plugin. That's the only reason I'm talking about it, and because it's a very, uh, the, what it does is very, um, you know, topical to, um, you know, legal terms of security and stuff. So this plugin has over 100,000 active installs, and just over three, around three weeks ago, uh, attackers seem to have discovered a, um, a vulnerability in the plugin and began to use it to gain access to WordPress sites and also install backdoor scripts. So it would it would, um, it would would install scripts and change things basically to the whole thing. Um, so 
the investigations were led by the WordPress security team specifically because they were trying, they were a bunch of people who were getting affected and they went to WordPress and trying to figure out what was going on. And WordPress did a, t a test to find out a bunch of like, you know, a bunch of different plugins were using the GDPR plugin as uh, a part of theirs. So you might not have directly installed GDPR plugin itself, but other plugins would like ask you to install it automatically and get the, then they would get it installed. Um, but so they found the problem and they contacted the, the, GDP, the, the people who made the plugin and it has been fixed. So 1.4.3 has the version that has this patch that uh, mitigates this vulnerability. So if you are using this plugin in your WordPress system, you should absolutely update it because if you don't, they're saying that attackers are targeting this uh, bug because it allows them to make a call to one of the, the plugin's internal functions and change the settings for both the plugin and also for the entire WordPress uh, install. So that could be very bad. So if you do use this plugin, you should absolutely update immediately. And you'll find a link to the update as well as this, uh, this forum uh, post to uh, let everybody know that they need to update in the show notes. Um, next in the show is some very bad security situation with Instagram. Unfortunately, when it was an issue with when you wanted to export your data or like download your data from their uh, servers, they had a bug where they would send your password in plain text. You know, so anybody who had a man in a villa could take your data or uh, any kind of, if you do it on a public network, you know, all kinds of stuff. So anyway, uh, according to the, to the information.com, that's an interesting website. Unfortunately, it's a paywall system, but you know, whatever. Um, the, I'll have a link to both the information website and a link to another one, like in gadget, gadget where it gives you more details because, uh, the paywall thing. Um, anyway, so Instagram has suffered a serious security leak of its, uh, of like pretty, pretty bad of exposing user passwords. The Instagram issue is linked to its tool that allows users to download a copy of the data. And uh, I kind of already said that, but it's more of a, um, it's, it's, it's necessary. Like they fixed it now, but what's funny about it is, well, not, it's not funny cause it's bad that people who are affected by it, but it does, it is funny because Instagram is owned by Facebook and Facebook has the motto of move fast, break things. And more and more the news about Facebook and about Instagram is them breaking things and moving too fast. And I think that's kind of funny. So they're living up to the motto very well. And that's a very bad motto. Just so you know, don't do that. Move fast without breaking things. That's a better motto. Move as fast as you can without creating breaks. There you go. You know, you also try that because right now this is not working for you. I mean, technically speaking, money-wise, it is kind of working for them because they're, um, you know, selling people's data and stuff. But moving on, if you're using Instagram, you know, feel, uh, you know, be sure to make uh, to make sure you know. You should probably, just in case, change password. You probably don't need to because if you didn't download the data, it probably isn't affected anyway. But you still should just consider it because it's uh, if you have oh and if you have it if you if you are worried about losing your password and stuff you should get a password manager like Bitwarden because Bitwarden is free open source and great and they actually recently did a, secu a recently did a security audit that um they found a bunch of bugs 
Um, none of them huge bugs. They were all ones they are like, like they needed to be solved and they had solved them. It was just, but there was no like big catastrophic thing, which is great. It's always good to, to see that they're doing, doing it properly. So I like that. Um, and if you, if you, if you, if you subscribe to the channel or to the show, I'm also going to be talking about Bitwarden in a future video as soon as I'm not sick, you know, so be sure to subscribe. And if you want to find more about this particular uh, bug from Instagram, you can find a link in the show notes. And finally, the show this week is the Linux gaming sales that are going on in like the autumn falls type sales. And first off, we have Steam. They have a sale. Humble Bundle has a sale in the Humble Store as well as the Jumbo 12. And there's also the Fanatical sale and the uh, the GOG sale, the GOG.com, or as it used to be called, Good Old Games. Um, there's also like just tons of different things. But I want to go ahead and before we get you know talk about the games that are on sale that I want you to, uh, that are really good deals, I wanted to uh, first let you know that the affiliate links are uh, for Humble Bundle and Fanatical. So if you get the Fanatical uh, sale or you go to the Humble Store or the Humble Bundle for the Jumbo. Oh, those are all affiliate links. Uh, so some some a percentage will go, be a commission for the this week in Linux and Tux Digital, but the, there's no affiliate for GOG or Steam. So if you'd like to, this is just a you know a possibility. I'm not saying I'm suggesting it. I'm just saying this. If you'd like to, if you wanted to check out whether the store a game you wanted to buy on Steam was also available on the Humble Store, which you could then get a Steam key from the Humble Store. You know, just there's some options there. I'm just saying, just saying. Like Rocket League is the same price on both. I'm just saying. Anyway, anyway continuing. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of games that are going going on right now, and like uh, that are discounted. And a lot of awesome games that are being discounted. So you can get Ballistic Overkill, which is a game that I play a lot of, as well as uh, the Destination Linux Crew. We play the Ballistic Overkill a lot. And we play with the community and stuff. So if you'd like to, you know, buy it now and join in the, that game, you can because it's only like six dollars. Uh, I think it's a little bit less, but you know, basically six dollars. And Rocket League, which I love, I play that all the time, and that's a uh, ten dollars right now. So it's fifty percent off for the normal price. Uh, there's also Gummy's Life, which we talked about in, on Destination Linux a couple episodes ago. Uh, it's a, it's like a, it's really a weird, adorable. And hilariously awesome, and the idea is a like a fighting battle, like game, like a like a arena type battle fighting game, uh, using candy, basically gummy bears, essentially fighting each other. It's really silly, but I like the idea of it. You can also get a huge discount for Borderlands series. So if you're interested in Ever looking at the, looking at the Borderlands series, uh, Borderlands uh, two, Borderlands one is not available in Linux, but Borderlands two and the pre sequel and all the DLCs and stuff are all available in Linux uh, natively. And they're currently having a discount for you can get basically every Borderlands game and every DLC and all that stuff for fifteen dollars. So that's like that's like two hundred dollars saving basically from the, the like the retail price of the games and stuff. So that's a pretty good deal. And uh, Borderlands Borderlands two is amazing. Borderlands pre-sequel is like still good, but not good as two. Two is, is fantastic. But, uh, also there's a rise of the tomb Raider is currently on sale for only $12, which is a pretty significant discount. And, uh, you can also get valves portal one and portal two for $3 each. Wait, no, sorry. 
You can get Portal 1 and Portal 2 for $3, period. But you can get Trine 1 and Trine 2, which are platformers that I really like. You can get those for each $3. So lots of games, uh, tons of games that are, that are really like Dirt Rallies also on big discount for the, I'm pretty sure from Humble, Humble Store. Uh, tons of games to check out if you would like to. You can find a link in the show notes for all these different platforms, as well as you can go to uh, tuxdigital.com slash games on sale, which will have links to the front page of each of these uh, each of these stores. So uh, th- it's actually better than that, really. They're not from the front page, I'm sorry. There is a front, okay, there is, but there's also these sections or these sale, you know, these uh, games on sale, and there's a link to the search section, the sales search for Linux on all these platforms. And the reason I did that is because most of these platforms have this weird thing where you have to like go to a certain section on the search, then choose which platform you want, then choose you want to get games on discount and all this other stuff. So those links are just direct links to those things. So to those platforms with those uh, variables already applied. So for example, if you wanted to go to see all the Linux games that are available on Steam and on sale, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Steam sale and etc. There's Fanatical Sale, Humble Sale, etc. You can find them all at tuxdigital.com slash games on sale and uh, also in the in the show notes for this episode and in the video description on YouTube. So, yep, lots of games and I'm probably going to pick up at least a few. So, if you would like to... Um, let me know what you're going to pick up as well and we can in the comments below and maybe we could play if you, you know, you get the same games we get, and I get. I'm by the way I'm going to get Gummy's Life cuz I think that's going to be hilariously fun to play like a ridiculous uh gummy battle, I don't know. It's hard to describe, it's weird. Just check it out. Um Gummy's Life and all the the sales for Steam and Humble and Fanatical and all that stuff in the show notes. Finally in the show this week is the some news for Super Tux Cart and Super Tux. And if you haven't heard, uh, there's a lot of cool games that are available that don't require Steam and also use the Tux Penguin as a character in the game. Uh, These are actually pretty old games. They've been around for a very long time, and uh, they're quite fun. Uh, But the the Super Tux Cart is doing something that I've been wanting for a very, very long time, and that is they are now going to offer online play so you can race other people. Fantastic. Been waiting for this for a very long time. Awesome. Uh, it's not technically ready right now. However, there are some tests. They are looking for testers to help them, um, you know, correct and perfect the issues of bugs or anything that happens with playing online. So they're asking for people to uh, test out the the new branch uh, to see if uh, you know if there's any bugs so they can fix them. Now the issue is that if you would you like to test. They don't provide any binaries to actually test. This is more of a, you have to compile the testing branch yourself in order to help out because they want people who are able to compile so they can do like uh, log testing and so they can send the logs based on like when you when you compile it, if there's an issue and stuff like that. Um, so that's that kind of thing. So if you are, if you're, you know, inclined to help there, that'd be great because SuperTux Cart um, is actually, they're, they're making a lot of new things. They even made a whole new, uh, rendering engine and physics engine and stuff like that. So um, I'm really excited that they're you know have, making so much progress because uh, it's a it's a fun game, and I like the fact that it has all these different mascots from various different projects as racers. Uh, it's great. 
uh, they also, there's also like a community that builds their own custom maps and custom racers and all kinds of stuff. So that's cool too. But the only thing that's missing from that game that I really, really want is online play and they're now working on it and it's pretty, and it's getting close. So I'm excited for that. The other game is super tux, which is a, a clone essentially of uh, super Mario back in the day. It's a platformer and it has uh, a bunch of uh, you know, the same style, the same kind of functionality of gameplay, but in a um, Linux type uh, a Tux style kind of thing. Um, but what's really cool about it is they're making a whole big update and they've re recently released a new alpha. Now, it, it is an alpha, so it's going to have some bugs and it's going to have some issues. So if you would like to, tech to test it, you can feel free to do so. But in the, in, instead of like the way Super Tuscar is doing it, SuperTux is doing it where they're offering an app image. So you just download the app images, set it, set it to executable, and then play the game. So if you want to test it that way, it's a really easy way to uh, try out and test out the new version if you'd like to, without having to worry about you know having dependencies and all this other stuff for it. Uh, so that's really cool, and I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad to see uh, games utilizing these uh, universal formats like that because it makes it a lot easier to play the games. And for the most part, Games are one of those examples where the dependencies being uh, coming f with the package is kind of like the normal. And like, for example, Zenotic, you would download this uh, zip or as tarball and everything would be included in there and you would just launch a file inside the folder. And if they were to just release it as an app image, it essentially would do the same thing. So it's really cool to see that some games are doing that with app images. Uh, so if you would like to check it out, you can find a link to both the SuperTux cart blog post as well as the uh, Gaming on Linux article about SuperTux in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, and many more. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. If you'd like to submit some news to the show, then you can do that at our subreddit by going to thisweekinlinux.reddit.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux as I'm a co-host of that show. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday, usually. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.